Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today is May 29th, 2020, and it's been about two and a half months since everyone's lives have been turned upside down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the industries that's been particularly hit hard is the retail sector. Aside from online giants like Amazon, the more traditional retail destinations like shopping malls, big box outlets, restaurants, and independent Main Street retailers are all having to massively adjust their business operations in order to survive. To get a better sense of what's going on in the retail market, I'm thrilled to once again be joined by Jamie Tate, founder and president of Tate Economic Research, a commercial real estate advisory firm based here in Toronto. So Jamie, it's a real pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me back, Jeremy. I'm really happy to be here. And you know, uh, it's, it's been almost two years to the day when you were you and I were uh, on this podcast to talk about the retail market, uh, it's amazing. Time has just flown by. I I had another listen to that podcast that we recorded in 2018, and and one yeah. of the first questions I asked you was about the industry's growing use of the term retail apocalypse, and your response was that it basically made for a great headline but probably was a bit of a stretch to describe the retail market in that way. So here we are two years later, the retail market is facing challenges that it has probably never faced before. And so I got to ask, is retail apocalypse an appropriate way to describe what's going on? Well, I think, uh, I don't think I would go that far to apocalypse. Certainly it's a time of challenge and a time of change, but apocalypse seems far too dark. That's good to hear. So, that that's great but let's let's go then back to before the pandemic hit um what was the retail market like what were the sectors that were struggling uh which were thriving i'm i'm sure you're going to cite amazon and what were some of the key development trends uh that were emerging sure well if we look at um at the four major asset classes of real estate so that being office and industrial residential and retail uh, prior to, to COVID-19, retail was the most challenged. Um, there was lots of retailers in trouble in Canada uh, early in the year. There was a great article that was put out that estimated there would be about a 1,000 store closures, and that, that article was from January of 2020. So it's chains like La Sanza, like Carlton Cards, Pier 1 closing stores, The Gap closing stores, Rona closing stores, many, many different types of stores and uh, and different types of operators. So in a general sense, uh, certainly the retail market hadn't been as uh, as buoyant as the other sectors. Now what 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 I think we've seen in terms of an exception to to everything in retail is that we've seen this dramatic change in e-commerce and and that's the uh, that's the bright spot as it comes to retailing as it comes to servicing. but in terms of retail on the ground, there's been a lot of change in the past, say, 15 years maybe, which has been um, a decline in the number of retail stores, sort of pure retail in terms of stores where you would go in and buy merchandise, and an increase in the number of services, 
So that's uh, restaurants and personal services like fitness centers and things like that. So unfortunately, when COVID-19 hit, uh, the retail areas that were becoming more service-oriented uh, were, were hit pretty hard. And so, yeah, that's the, that's the, the major change that we've seen here. So the, the, we've seen food and beverage start to become more and more important and on main streets and in shopping centers. And, uh, and of course, that's the, uh, the type of business that was hit hardest by COVID. So for some sectors, it sounds like the, the impacts from the pandemic have accelerated the, those retail trends, and, and, and for others, it, it sort of shifted direction. Oh, absolutely. Accelerated is a, is a perfect word to describe the situation. Um, certainly what we've seen is, uh, you know, if your business was in trouble before COVID um, and it was on a, on a, in a decline, uh, that decline got much more uh, severe uh, with COVID. And the same way, on the flip side of things, uh, we've seen the, the increase in, in other types of services, such as, uh, such as e-commerce. Again, you know, tremendous growth, new users, and, and the people that have been using it before, using it more frequently and making bigger purchases on it. Okay, well, let's get into that a little bit later. I, I first want to understand if, if you have any any stats or metrics to kind of characterize um, what the retail market is going through or what it has been going through in the last couple of months? Oh, sure. I mean, in a, in a real general sense, retail is reflective of the state of the economy. And so what we've seen here in the, in the GTA has been a, a, a tremendous amount of job loss. So we've lost over half a million jobs in the GTA. Uh, and that equates to roughly eight years of growth. Uh, and that's directly impacting uh, retail. Uh, it's impacting everything, but certainly impacting retail. But what we've really seen is, uh, is a, a shift in expenditures. So we've seen, a, first of all, we've seen a big decline. We've seen the biggest decline ever recorded in retail sales between March and, and April. So on a year-to-year basis, sales are down considerably and um, down about 10%, and that's just in March. So StatsCan is estimating that sales are going to come down another 16% in April. Now, those, those numbers aren't out yet, but, but that's a dramatic increase. Um, what would be a normal kind of decline in, in, in numbers? You're saying well, 10%, we, but what, how does that compare to, uh, say, a year, uh, a year ago where there may have been a decline? Sure. Year-to-year basis are, are relatively constant, a little bit up in terms of retail sales growth. So there's a moderate growth, roughly keeping pace with inflation. So a 10% decline is a, is a serious decline. It's billions of dollars across the country. Hmm. Um, do you have a sense on how many retail jobs have been lost? There's been, there's been num- numerous estimates that are out there. I mean, I think the, the one that sort of hits closest to home that I've seen is, is 800,000 restaurant workers, um, in a, so in that particular segment. And that's, and that's in a, Canada or, or Toronto? That's a, that's a Canadian number, Okay. Yeah, yeah, a huge number. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about some examples of, of which retail segments have, have really been hit hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking restaurants, of course, and, and which are the ones that uh, actually benefited? Well, it's, um, it's a great question because it's, certainly there is a dichotomy. And if we look at retail sales, uh, that, that decline I was mentioning before, the 10% in March, 
it, it actually indicates that there's three categories that uh, have, have experienced increases in sales. And so that's the, that's the essentials. So that's the supermarkets, uh, that's the drugstores, and that's the general merchandisers, which would include department stores such as Walmart. So from that perspective, there's, uh, there's increases. What we've seen um, <clears throat> in terms of, of declines is there's some really hard-hit categories. And so those types of stores that are selling clothing and shoes or luxury items, uh, they're down, uh, some of them are down almost 50% in the, in the category. And I have this great example, which is like nobody's out there buying luggage, you know. That's <laughs> right. one of those things, it's just gone. Nobody's oh purchasing God. luggage. <laughs> right. No one's going to be mentioning the word Samsonite for, for some time. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> let's, let's then talk uh, about the different, I guess, the different scales of, of retail. And, and I want to kind of start at the, at the local level, the neighborhood retail, independent uh, Main Street retailers and the local restaurants. A lot of us are, are now working from home. Uh, we're, we're really starting to rediscover our neighborhoods if, if we hadn't already. Uh, we're probably have, we're more keenly aware of those local businesses that um, are, are trying to survive, those ones that have closed. You know, the, the, the local retailers, uh, you know, these are, these are people who have really put everything into their business. Uh, it's a passion of theirs, and uh, it means everything to them. So maybe you can describe to me the, the kind of pressures that they're under. Sure. Well, I think there's a there's to, to back up a little bit. There there's there has been and there continues to be a, a lot of pressure on Main Street retailers, and and that certainly in our Toronto context reflects uh, things like property taxes, uh, rental rates. Um, in Ontario, we saw an increase in in minimum wage, uh, and then there's the general pressure that uh, that uh, Main Street retailers are under from uh, from competition, be that big box and shopping centers and e-commerce. But it's uh, it's generally a challenging time; has been a challenging time for uh, for Main Street retail. Now, what I think we've seen uh, in during the pandemic, where so many more people are working from home and spending more time locally. We're seeing customer shopping patterns that have changed dramatically. So we're able to, to, uh, to do research into essentially how far cell phones travel. And we've been able to note that, that people are spending a lot more time locally than they, than they were in the past. So there's, there's now a tremendous appreciation and there's an understanding of, um, first of all, what's in the neighborhood. Uh, and second of all, uh, there's more of an understanding of how difficult it is to be running a Main Street business and how passionate the, the local operators have been and continue to be. So I think from that sort of perspective, there's, there's, some, there's some positive that has come out of this in terms of the, the local retailers and the exposure that they've gotten to the, the, the walk-in traffic and the neighborhood traffic. Another part of that is the the different hours that people are keeping. So we're no longer, you know, as a sort of a mass society, we're no longer uh, working a nine to five job in a, you know, in a, in a, a location that's away from home. We're uh, more flexible with our time and more able to, to make that local walkable shopping trip. So there are some things that are coming out of that, but, but definitely there's, um, there's some concern about how how well those neighborhood operators uh, can maintain, and, and how how things are going to come, how they're going to come through the uh, the pandemic for sure. But the the primary challenge, I presume, is is the ability to pay their rent, um, mm-hmm. and and now we're in the third month. Um, 
you know, as every month uh, progresses, uh, can the retailers, can these local retailers hold out? Uh, will the, are the government subsidies enough to, to keep them afloat? Well, it's, it certainly varies depending on individual circumstance and situation. So there has been some government assistance and, and some rent relief. Uh, not everybody qualifies. Not all landlords have, uh, have uh, requested that type of assistance. Um, the, the Canadian Federation of Independent, or, sorry, of Independent Businesses has done a survey work that suggests that, that up to 40% of small businesses think they won't make it through if, uh, if, if they're still restricted in terms of the pandemic and their ability to operate. Um, so there's, there's definitely um, there's some concerns there. So, but I, I, I'm definitely aware of, of landlords that have made considerable concessions for their, uh, for their tenants. So some, for example, I've seen, I've seen rent eliminated uh, while the businesses are closed, uh, reductions that are coming forward, and uh, the ability to operate just simply based on a percentage of sales, uh, things that are all being negotiated with landlords. Because I think a lot of landlords are perceiving that, uh, you know, we're all in this together. The landlords want to keep the tenants, and the tenants want to stay in, in the buildings. And uh, the idea that we'll just buckle down and get through this together. So there's a lot of cooperation out there, which is really, really great to see. Yeah, except you do hear stories of some landlords who are still uh persistent in, in, in evicting their tenants, their retail tenants, if the retailers are not able to pay the entirety of their rent. And I, I guess in social media, the, sometimes those landlords are, uh, are getting a negative response. Um, has that sort of subsided now, now that, that landlords are recognizing that, look, you know, if you get rid of your retail tenant, um, there's probably no one else out there who's going to replace them? Well, it's an it's an interesting one. Like from from the landlord perspective, uh, well, from anyone's perspective, a lease is a is a legal document. It's a contract. It's an agreement. And so, if if uh, a tenant doesn't pay rent and they violated the lease, and the landlord is you know perfectly within their rights to uh, to exercise whatever options they are, and and that often includes the ability to evict the tenant. Uh, and 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 it could very well be the case that that was a, a goal of a landlord uh, at some point in the uh, in the process, and they were able to use this situation to their benefit to get rid of a tenant that they didn't want for whatever reason. So I'm I'm certainly um, you know suspect that there are cases that are like that. But I I think in a in a general sense there is a perception that that uh, that we want to work together and that there aren't a whole bunch of retailers banging down the door to take that spot if that landlord gets rid of the tenant that's in it right now. So it might be better for everybody involved to, to wait it out and maybe defer or to reduce or somehow come to an agreement that keeps everybody in business. I want to ask, how, how are the retailers, the, again, the, the Main Street retailers, what, what are some good examples of how they have adapted uh, in the short term and and what do you think they need to do to um uh to pivot or adapt in the long term oh sure i mean i think there's a great expression you know necessity breeds innovation and uh so we've seen a big shift towards uh, curbside pickup um we've seen a big shift towards uh uh, appointments, the scheduling to, uh, you know, call me, send me an email, uh, tell me when you want to come in and I'll be there, I'll be ready for you. There's been um, a, a number of different BIAs, so business improvement areas that are, uh, 
put together to to support local local main streets and for example Belleville has a has one of the first operators that came on and and put their entire main street onto the internet so you can buy stuff online that you never used to be able to do so it's it's forcing that adapting and and the innovation which has been really positive and i think there's been a few different uh BIAs here in the city of Toronto that have been that have been uh, very proactive in terms of signage and promotion and and uh making sure that customers are informed you know who's open for takeout who's got limited hours who's got the curbside and uh, so there's a lot of things that are happening out there, uh, absolutely. And 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 I have to say that uh, if anyone hasn't seen, if it's retailers that haven't seen, there's um, a, a publication by the Retail Council of Canada that's called Road to Retail Recovery, and it includes all sorts of international examples of uh, of uh, suggestions and and guidance for. Do you uh, think it's enough? Do you think there's um, there's enough there, like curbside pickup and? Uh, you know, limited number of um, customers that can go into a store, um, online shop. Is, there, is it enough to sustain uh, the retailers uh, so that they can, can you know, pay the rent in, in the long term and pay their staff? It's very challenging, and, and I think it's very specific that relates to, to individual retailers and, and their operations. But in a real general sense, Jeremy, what's, what's happening is, is demand. Um, you know, I'm an economist, so the so demand and the supply are, are two important things for me. And, uh, and so demand, which, you know, you could see as customers, uh, you know, it's going to, customers are, are being reduced. So um, that, that's more challenging. Retail thrives on foot traffic and getting people into your store and past your window and, and uh, to a certain extent onto your website and making those purchases, converting them into actual shoppers. So the less traffic that you have, the more difficult it is. So the less people you're allowed to have in your store, the more difficult it is. And, and of course, there are, uh, there are increased costs associated with operating uh, retail outlet in the in a pandemic such as this, so it's it's very challenging for retailers. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's then shift to uh, the larger retail mm-hmm. environment, the the big boxes, the big national retail chain, the international retail chains, and department stores. I I had a listen to um, Bloomberg News Network News uh, last week, and they interviewed uh, Heather Reisman, uh, the CEO of Indigo Indigo mm-hmm. Books. And um, she was talking about the impacts to uh, to Indigo, and while their online business is is doing well, although she did say that there were challenges to maintaining social distancing in their distribution w- uh, warehouses, their two hundred plus stores are just getting clobbered. And mm-hmm. she went on to say that this is a really big deal. This is really significant um, for any big uh, non essential retailer. Why don't you tell me more about the challenges that retailers like these are dealing with on both the operational and financial side of things? Oh, certainly. I mean, from the uh, from from again coming back to that very simple sort of supply and demand, um, that retailers need to get customers through those doors, and and that's a big challenge. So, so what's happened uh, in terms of closures and reductions in hours and um, the ability to to simply generate traffic has been a tremendous tremendous hit on non-essential retailers, and I think that that is just an overriding concern. 
So what what retailers are also facing is the flip side of things, which is relating to cost and relating to their own internal operations. I mean, a lot of retailers are dependent on imported goods, you know, when we start to look at the larger operators. And so, you know, the supply chain problems that we had with, uh, with say, Chinese imports, for example, have dramatically affected the ability to simply fill shelves. So there's definitely uh, many, many parts of that equation that are impacting big retailers. And um, definitely what we've seen is a, is a decline in, in store sizes in the past, and we've seen uh, a trend towards larger stores like Indigo becoming smaller stores. And part of that is, is the efficiency, as, as, uh, as Heather had mentioned, in terms of the, the online business, so a shift away from the store to the online. But generally speaking, the online business, is, uh, is to a certain extent, it cannibalizes the business from the, uh, from the store itself. So the overall sales of the, of the chain are not going to be improving you know, just because of uh, a shift towards online. So you, I, I suspect that you would expect um, more store closure announcements um, in the near term. Oh, I think so. We've seen um, we've seen some some more uh, more information that's out there that relates to store closures, and I think we're not done. So we will see stores. Um, certainly, stores like the Gap uh, have come out and said they're not paying rent. Uh, whether they're going to reopen all their stores, uh, you know, they said they're not. Which ones? We don't know. Uh, and again, that's been sort of a stalwart of, of uh, big box retail and of shopping centers for many, many years. So when we see stores like that, you know, big sort of well-capitalized international brands saying we're not going to reopen all our stores, I think that's indicative of what we're going to see uh, throughout the country. So what are the big retailers doing then to adapt and, and plan for the future? Well, big retailers, I think, have made, have made it has been a transformational shift towards the online business. So there's been, um, there's been big changes there in terms of the efficiency of the operations, the hiring and the stocking and, and uh, businesses. If you start to think about curbside, is, is way more important than it was in the past. I've seen designs of stores that will be changing. So we're going to see the introduction of drive-throughs that uh, in stores that we hadn't seen before. The idea that, that people will be able to sort of take the click-and-collect concept a little bit further. So what used to be the case of you'd be able to shop online and you, you would go to your store, park your car and everything. Well, they'll, they'll not come right out and put it in the trunk of your car. And we've seen a lot of things like that where stores are, are going to have to get just simply more efficient at operating the online business. But does this, but the online business, doesn't that undermine, um, it, it, for some retailers like Indigo, the, the, uh, the essence of what that um, in-person, in-store experience is all about, uh, especially for something like uh, a, a company like Indigo, where it's more than just the books. It's, it's about the you know the uh, the extras and the feeling you get in going into that store. If you're going online, are you, are you able to replicate that? And are you putting yourself up against other uh, online retailers like Amazon and, and other competitors? Oh, it's really difficult. I mean, what we've seen, Jeremy, was the, uh, a shift towards in towards the uh, the experience. And so we all talked about the experience and how you could differentiate yourself as a retailer from you know the big box threat or the e-commerce threat. And so that experience was you know the idea of walking into the store and what it looked like, what it what the atmosphere was like, what you could touch, you know, the interaction between the employees, the 
the interactive experience of trying things on or, or uh, you know, whether it's touching and feeling and actually getting the fabric or sitting on the couch, you know, all those sorts of things. And, uh, and, and now that experience is, uh, is going to be very hard to recreate in a post-COVID environment. And that's going to be a big challenge for retail. And certainly that's part of a chain like an Indigo, which, uh, you know, took sort of a big a bookstore concept and, uh, and evolved it over time. So it's a much different experience than it was when, certainly when they opened, but much different than the other bookstores they replaced. Well, then let's talk a little bit by extension of these big retailers. Um, so I'll, I'll, most of them are in shopping malls. Um, how are the big landlords uh, in Canada, how are they dealing with it? I mean, you know, you think about a mall, it's it's just the the opposite of what we're trying to achieve, which is social distancing. The mall is a gathering place. It's a place to, you know, to, ha- to uh, have that experience. Um, and certainly during the holiday season, it can get very crowded. What? Tell me a little bit about some of the biggest challenges the landlords are facing. Well, from the landlord perspective, I think there's we can we can sort of divide them into uh, into two categories, and that's the landlords that are uh, outdoor oriented centers, and uh, and then the indoor malls. So, say for example, the companies like the Rio Cans and the Smart Centers and First Capitals and so on. So large, you know, certainly national companies, uh, and they're tending to be uh, not as impacted in terms of their ability to collect rent and their uh, their ability to operate, and and part of that is because uh, a, a big portion of their operators, their tenants, are uh, are considered essential. So supermarket anchors and gro- and uh, liquor stores and drug stores and that sort of thing. So so that's been uh, that's been good. Um, it, it's certainly not nobody's really positive about how how. Uh, Things have gone in terms of say say rent collection, and those those bigger companies like that are are collecting maybe seventy percent of the rent that they would normally be collecting so um, not not terribly impacted but definitely impacted um, whereas on the flip side of that is the indoor malls so when you see the larger companies and sort of every major city has has uh, that big prominent mall of course Toronto has quite a few, but you know the Cadillac Fairviews of the oxfords and so they're collecting maybe 20% or something like that of their rent. And so that is uh, indicative of uh, the way their business has been operating in terms of the, the retail tenancies being fashion-oriented. And, and they've received you know, maybe three-quarters of the tenants are looking for rental uh, relief in some form. So it's really, really difficult from that perspective. Like where they, where they are right now is a, is a difficult place to be. Now, that being said... Uh, Certainly, the Canadian shopping center industry is is uh, operated by companies that have really deep pockets. So they're long-term players, they're pension funds, and that sort of thing. So um, you know what what's sort of going on for a few months or however long we're we're going to be in this situation is not necessarily the end of the shopping center by any means, but uh, but definitely a blip because of again the ability of them to focus on the longer term. Sounds like they can. They've got the deep pockets. They can weather the storm, um, but certainly to bring customers back to the mall, um, I, I assume some design changes need to be made. Um, do you, Do you have any sense of what's being contemplated? Oh, certainly. So what's what's happened? Um, we're in in Ontario. We've been. Uh, 
uh, sort of behind, if you will, in terms of the reopening of shopping centers relative to the rest of the country. So BC and Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, the uh, the shopping centers have been open uh, for for a few weeks now. So it's been a gradual return to the mall. So I, I've been surprised by the level of customer traffic that's come through, and so I, I've been told that malls have been opening with roughly 20% of their uh, previous sort of a year ago traffic volumes. Uh, and then those numbers have been increasing as we, uh, as we sort of ramp up um, after a couple, of, a couple of weeks of being in operation. So, so it's been a, a, a slow return to the mall. But what we're seeing is, is uh, a lot of changes in terms of design and planning. And so the idea of, uh, of parking in click and collect areas and you know, whether we'll have designated drive-up, drive-through areas, um, the in-car, in-trunk service, and the curbside pickups. But what we're seeing is the ability of, uh, of retailers to, uh, or sorry, shopping center owners through their retailers to, uh, to plan for designated parking areas where, say, for example, you would park and you would then notify the store that you're in you know, the blue area in spot 32 and somebody from that store would bring it right out to you. So there's things like that that are all being planned and are, are in process, um, but we're not quite there yet uh, in terms of implementing them. Okay. One, of, one of the big ones there relates to restaurants and mm. uh, the ability to, um, to get, to, to expand the footprint of, of, uh, of a restaurant. So, um, the operators of shopping centers are looking at whether they're expanding into the parking lots, uh, into other space within the mall, expanding into sort of a, an atrium kind of a setup, but uh, somehow spreading out these tables and allowing the, the restaurants to keep, keep the, uh, the number of seats somewhere, somewhere that, uh, that keeps them in operation too. Right? But wouldn't that just mean that the, the restaurants would have to pay more rent because they're occupying more space? Well, yeah, I mean, that would be the goal, uh, certainly from an operational perspective of the landlord. But I think the goal in the, uh, in the shorter term is to keep the restaurants in operation. And part of it is to encourage shoppers to stay in the, in the center. So uh, we're seeing food courts that are open but without seating. Uh, so restaurants with an ability to, uh, to sit down and uh, whether that's a, a short little snack that you take and then you continue shopping or a meal that's part of your destination – but certainly the uh, ability to encourage people to stay in the center uh, is, is a goal of every shopping center owner. Well, what about the food courts uh, in all the shopping malls? Uh, you know, I work at Young and Dundas in the, uh, in the same building that uh, shares with the Eaton Center and the very, very busy food court. What, what just, I guess, briefly, what's the outlook for, for the food courts? Well, in the short term, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just closure of the seating. In the longer term, it will be spaced out seating. Uh, so once it's determined what's an appropriate or effective distance is, what I'm guessing is that we will see, and I've seen a concept plan for this, is essentially the seating, maybe half the seating removed so that you're sitting at a table which is now distant from the next table. So we're, especially in the Eaton Center that you mentioned, Jeremy, uh, things are pretty tight. So whether that is half as much seating or even less, we're not exactly sure. But definitely I would expect that we will see less seating, but we will still see seating. Hmm. Okay, I want to I um, ask about 
the online retailers and I, I you know it's really Amazon that's leading the charge um, mm-hmm. they're really at the other end of the spectrum you know I <laughs> I read somewhere that Jeff Bezos is is on course to become the world's first trillionaire um, and and obviously that's looking very very likely uh, the way that everyone is shopping online these days uh, you, you know what what does the future hold for online retail look uh, in the short term and maybe even the longer term more accelerated than than before oh absolutely this has been uh, this has been a tremendous period of growth for online retailing in general Amazon in particular uh, you know on on the top of the pile if you will. Uh, but what what we've seen, we've been tracking online retailing for years, and the portion of sales that are that are uh, attracted by e-commerce versus uh, bricks and mortar retail. So we've been seeing these numbers uh, sort of gradually increase. They've been increasing, no doubt about it, but increasing sort of as a percentage of total retail sales by maybe a percent a year, that sort of thing. Um, and now what I think has happened is that we've seen, a, a you know, maybe we've seen 10 years of growth in the past uh, 73 days. Wow. We've seen this emergency order. Like it is, we, we they, I, I heard a great expression which said, this is not a linear change. This is no longer that kind of change. This is a, a huge change. And I think it's a seismic change in the way that, that, um, that Amazon and, and other operators. Amazon's not the only one. I mean, Amazon has done really well, and um, as you commented, uh, you know, it's bigger than it has ever been before. But stores like uh, like Walmart, Walmart's up 73% in terms of online, and but and general retailing in Canada, we've seen sales go up about 40% in online. So it's a huge, huge shift. Uh, the biggest problem that companies like Amazon have are are internal, you know, and it's the ability to to staff, it's the ability to get the product shipped. And so when we're hearing Amazon, you know, advertising saying no resume, no experience, um, they're promoting the safety of their workplace, they're uh, they're out there aggressively trying to uh, to get employees. And that's what's slowing them down. And so now what we, you know, what we had seen before with say an Amazon Prime membership, a very quick delivery, now, if it's a non-essential item, you're, you know, you may be three, four weeks before your Amazon package arrives. Oh, I've experienced that firsthand for sure. And <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just going to ask. I mean, it, that, it, you know, the fact that it takes two or three, maybe four weeks or more to get a product, uh, and, and it, it creates frustration for the customer. Is it, you know, is that going to turn off some customers, and they're just going to hold out and wait for? maybe the brick and mortar uh, destination to uh, open up well that's that's one of the things that uh, you know a brick and mortar store the immediate gratification of going to make a purchase i mean e- you know e-commerce just simply can't take that away it it never can and that's one of the advantages of uh, of being able to go into a store into any kind of store uh, be it the big shopping mall or the mom and pop and it's it's that ability to to get that product and to walk out with it and so certainly there's um, there's some element of backlash where people are getting to the you know the end of their Amazon sort of purchase and saying okay I I, I don't need to wait four weeks for that and uh, I'm not going to wait um, but in a general sense that uh, that portion of the marketplace is is vastly outweighed by the number of people that are are buying more and uh, most importantly in terms of e-commerce is the uh, the driving factor being new shoppers so people that had not used e-commerce before uh, are using it and so there will be some portion of those shoppers whether they prefer 
to be at the mom and pop or prefer to be at the supermarket or whatever, but they will, uh, some portion will remain uh, e-commerce shoppers in the future. Hmm. Well, um, we are told in the media and, and by, uh, I guess, our, our leaders that uh, a vaccine is probably not likely in the, uh, at least in the next number of months. It's probably going to be a year or two uh, before a vaccine is found. And, and I, I suspect until that time, people are going to remain a little bit on edge. Um, you know, can the market, can the retail market hang in there that long for the next, say, year or two? Well, I think it. I think what's going to happen is is we're going to see uh, a number of different operators that have, that will be adjusting, and so market expectations will be adjusting, and consumers will be adjusting, and so there's a, there's quite a bit of research out there that relates to customers and their their emotions and their thoughts about about um, what what is going to make them get back into shopping and and uh, and how it's going to work, and I, I think what's happening. Is we're seeing certainly you're 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 definitely correct that there's a there's a, a, a desire a need to get a vaccine out there and that's going to be the end of this COVID situation as it relates to retail. Um, you know this is this is uh, fundamentally a, a health issue that's turned into an economic issue, and so once the health part of it is resolved, we can anticipate that the economic part will be resolved. Uh, but what we're seeing is that customers are saying, you know, what I, I will go shopping. I will do it, and I need you to help. I need the retailer to to make some concessions, and so whether that's cleaning, um, disinfecting, it's the social distancing, it's occupancy limits, it's staff with masks and gloves, whatever it is. But I think that we're going to see that this becomes a little bit more acceptable to make those shopping trips, and whether we see the masks becoming. Uh, uh, commonplace. And certainly, they're becoming more and more common. But uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, we can look at masks as becoming a fashion accessory. Well, it already <laughs> and, has been. Yeah. And no, definitely. I mean, we've seen. You know, I've seen Toronto Raptors masks. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. It's it's really nice. So, so the idea that it's just no longer a a, a piece of uh, you know PPE, but it's actually something that uh, you know people might want to put on and and uh, use to, to accentuate their, their style or, or what it is they want to present as. Okay, so let's end off on a, on a good note then. What, what for you, um, what's the silver lining that, that can be drawn from, from everything that we've experienced in the last little while? Well, I think there's, um, there's, a, there's a few things. There's, there's, uh, I, I saw a great survey question that uh, asked people, what uh, what's the first thing I want to do when the quarantine is over? And the number one thing was get a haircut. Sure. Uh, the number two thing was go to a restaurant or a bar with friends. Uh, the third thing was was walking, and the fourth thing was shopping. So uh, certainly there's a, there's an appetite for people to be uh, to be returning to this normal, to be spending, to be out, and to be social. So I think that's uh, that's positive. Um, I think in a in a general sense when we look at when we look at retail, uh, you know, we, we're certainly recognizing that there might be less demand, um, but there's also going to be less supply. That's opportunities for redevelopments, for different changes in the way that retail operates. But, um, you know, we, we also look back at the financial crisis of 2009, and um, it took a long time for retail sales to recover. It took 18 months for sales to get back to the pre-crisis levels, but they did. They did, and they continued to increase. 
And so the way that I look at, at this situation is that the companies and the businesses that make it through, um, they're going to be rewarded. And that retail is going to find a way through this. Retail always does. And, and I, I think that's going to be the situation here as we go forward. Right. So you're saying that the silver lining is, is um, those retailers that can be innovative um, through all this uh, and, and are able to figure out how to survive are, are really going to thrive uh, once we, we get to the other end. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's going to be the key. The innovation, the staying on top of the pulse, the watching out for consumers and making sure that you can meet the consumer demands that are, that are just so quickly changing is going to be key. And, uh, and we're going to see that happen. Very interesting. It's a lot to take in. I wish we had uh, more time, but you know, we don't want to exhaust our listeners. So um, mm-hmm. Uh, the busy times for you, I'm sure, trying to stay on top of everything. It's it's a it's depressing uh, to 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 read about everything and to see the retailers uh, having to cope. Uh, some of them closing, some of them adjusting, holding out. Um, but it's it's so integral to our urban environment, to either the main streets or the or. or you know the big streets. It, it's it's a really it's a critical component of um, of our industry. I really I really appreciate your time and um, thanks for joining me on the on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeremy. And if there's one thing I can add out there to our listeners is uh, let's all get out there and support our local businesses. That's a great comment. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Thank you, Jeremy. 